Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today in the show, we're bringing you something a little bit different. Recently, I published on my Substack an article in response to a different one by Balaji Srinivasan, a strong proponent of cryptocurrencies. In it, he describes architecting a cloud state, a new governing system based on connections made online, defying many of the existing government structures and starting a new one, clean of any problems that may have existed previously. Of course, this is going to be, certainly, a tough task to handle. It's nonetheless an incredibly interesting theoretical space to explore. Those of you who like the show will probably enjoy reading the essay at cactus.substack.com, or listening to the original piece, my comments, and the piece that I wrote in response. If you've already read the Bology piece, and don't particularly have interest in my comments, then you can skip to my piece at the timestamp below. Without further ado, let's get started. Whenever I'm inserting my own comments, you'll hear this ding before my comments begin, and you'll hear this other ding once my comments are over. Why start a new country? We want to be able to peacefully start a new country for the same reason we want a bare plot of earth, a blank sheet of paper, an empty text buffer, a fresh startup, or a clean slate. Because we want to build something new without historical constraint. The financial demand for a clean slate is clear. People buy millions of acres of vacant land, incorporate hundreds of thousands of new companies each year, spending billions just to get that fresh start. And now that it's possible to start not just new companies, but new communities and new currencies, we see people flocking to create those as well. The societal value of a clean slate is also clear. In the technology sector alone, the ability to form new companies has created literally trillions of dollars in wealth over the past few decades. Indeed, if we imagine a world where you couldn't obtain a blank sheet of paper but had to erase an older one, where you couldn't just acquire base land but have to knock down a standing building, where you couldn't just create a new company but had to reform an existing firm, we imagine endless conflict over scarce resources. Perhaps we don't have to think too hard to imagine this world. It resembles our own. In the distant past, people could only write on clay tablets. In the recent past, they were executed for contemplating entrepreneurship, and in the immediate present, they are arguing over replacing an ancient gas station. In these times and places, making a fresh start was technologically infeasible, politically impossible, or judicially punishable. And that's where we are today, with countries, with cities, with nations, with governments, and with much of the physical world. Because the brand new is unthinkable, we fight over the old. But perhaps we can change that. So there are some quite brilliant artistic arguments for the construction of a cloud state, I think. Or at the very least, the construction of a new country. These comparisons are likely to appeal to many, and the intuition behind them makes sense. But I'm always wary, on this show especially, about making parallels without actually providing evidence to show that it's the same. But of course, if you do actually do that work, if you dig through history and you look at the prominence of emerging states, if you look at the example of the United States to strip itself of some of the internal sectarian conflicts of the past, if you look at now the Asian democracies of being immune from some of the decadence characterizing Western Europe and North America, then you can see that with each renewal, there tends to be at the very least a correlation towards being able to avoid the pitfalls of old. Maybe this is trivial. Maybe you already see the abundance of upsides from starting a new country. However, those who are hesitant, this is for them. 
This is for you if you are one of those people. And I think understanding some of the upside gains, along with some of the possible difficulties in starting a new country, is essential for navigating this path. I think with regards to a cloud state in particular, and this is a point that Balaji himself has made, there's a powerful change in the democratic incentives if you give the immediate ability to change between cloud states instead of simply an election. That's because an election creates a 51% rule with some notable exceptions. And while many of the exceptions carved out are great, having the ability to select based on your feet, to vote by immigration, which you will have under most cloud state systems, can be much more beneficial in making sure that everyone involved is actually choosing something that they themselves would actually want to participate in. How to start a new country. There are at least six ways to start new countries that have been publicly discussed. Three are conventional and three are unconventional. We will introduce them only to deprioritize them all in favor of a seventh. The most conventional way to start a new country involves winning sufficient power in elections to either rewrite the laws of an existing state, or b, carve out a new one from scratch with the consent of the international community. This is the most widely discussed path, and by far the most crowded. Many people care about this avenue, perhaps too many. Of course, I think there's always going to be some interaction that you'll have when you're starting a cloud state with existing countries. Legal pressure, lobbying, etc. That type of influence game is going to be essential to actually escape from some of the existing laws. You're not going to do so militarily, particularly with a cloud state. Although, maybe I'm jumping the gun because that principle hasn't even been introduced yet. 2. Revolution The second obvious way is to carry off a political revolution. We don't advise attempting this. Particularly momentous elections are sometimes referred to as revolutions, though revolution frequently involves bloodshed. Revolutions are infrequent, but everyone knows they mean a new government. The third conventional way is to win a war. We don't advise attempting this either. A war is not independent of the other two. Indeed, both elections and revolutions can lead to wars that end up carving out new polities. Like a revolution, a war is infrequent and undesirable, but again is widely known as a mean by which national borders may be rewritten. Micronations. Now we get to the unconventional. The most obvious of the unconventional approaches, and the one people think of most when they hear the concept of starting a new country, occurs when an eccentric plants a flag on an offshore platform or a disputed patch of dirt and declare themselves king of nothing. If the issue with elections is that too many people care about them, the issue with these so-called micronations is that too few people care. Because a state, like a currency, is an inherently social affair, a few people in the middle of nowhere won't be able to organize a military, enforce laws, or be able to be recognized by other nations. Moreover, while an existing state may be content to let people harmlessly LARP a fake country in their backyard, an actual threat to sovereignty typically produces a response with real guns, whether that be the Falklands or Sakhalin. Seasteading. Here we get interesting. Conceived by Patrick Friedman and backed by Peter Thiel, seasteading essentially starts with the observation that cruise ships exist, and asks whether we could move from a few weeks on the water at a time to semi-permanent habitation on international waters, with frequent docking of course. As the cost of cruise ships has fallen recently, this approach is becoming more feasible, but we haven't seen a working example. Of course, all these alternatives are possibly going to happen in conjunction with whatever state forms. I think the difference between saying that one of these lanes is not prioritized is different from saying 
we don't need to do any sort of drafting, any sort of study, any type of uh, historical review of these types of strategies, because in the end, you might be backed into utilizing one of them, whether we want to or not. Perhaps the most prestigious of the start a new country paths is the idea of colonizing other planets. Unlike seasteading or micronations, space explorations started at the government level and has been glamorized in many movies and TV shows, so it enjoys a higher degree of social acceptability. People mainly think of it as currently technically infeasible, rather than outright crazy. Elon Musk's SpaceX is one entity seriously contemplating the logistics of starting up a new state on Mars. And finally, we arrive at our preferred method, the cloud country. Our idea is to proceed cloud first, land last. Rather than starting with a physical territory, we start with a digital community. We recruit online for a group of people interested in founding a new virtual social network, a new city, and eventually a new country. We build the embryonic state as an open source project. We organize our internal economy around remote work, we cultivate in-person levels of civility, we simulate architecture in VR, and we create art and literature that reflects our values. These types of cultural communities are often exactly the types of social technologies, the interaction patterns that we cross and that we accept because they're beneficial to all of us, that are incredibly necessary in order to solve collective action problems and other game-theoretic ideas. This is going to be a key point, and perhaps the thesis statement, of my response essay. Over time, we eventually crowdfund territory in the real world, but not necessarily contiguous territory. Because an underappreciated fact is that the internet allows us to network enclaves. Put another way, a cloud community need not acquire all of its territory in one place at one time. It can connect a thousand apartments, a hundred homes, a dozen cul-de-sacs in different cities into a new kind of fractal polity, with its capital in the cloud. Over time, community members migrate between these enclaves and crowdfund territory nearby, with every individual dwelling and group house presenting an independent opportunity for expansion. What we've described thus far is much like the concept of ethnic diasporas, which are internationally dispersed but connected by communication channels with each other and the motherland. The twist is that our version is a reverse diaspora, a community that forms first on the internet, builds a culture online, and then comes together in person to build dwellings and structures. In a sense, you can think of each physical outpost of this digital community as a cloud embassy, similar to the grassroots Bitcoin embassies that have arisen around the world. New recruits can come to either the virtual or physical environment, beta test, and decide to leave or stay. Now, with all this talk of embassies and countries, one might well contend that cloud countries, like the aforementioned micronations, are also just a LARP. Unlike micronations, however, they're set up to be a scaled LARP, a feat of imagination practiced by large numbers of people at the same time. And the experience of cryptocurrencies over the last decade show us how powerful such a shared LARP can be. Once again, there are certain tensions with regards to the ease of starting a new country and various measures that we might associate with a country, including a military, an economy, or a population. The idea of a shared LARP, a live-action roleplay in which people are all believing in the same sort of fictions or half-fictions, is vital to not just the development of cloud countries, but the development of all of the existing countries we have right now. This is a case that's made incredibly well in the classic book by Yuval Noah Harari, Sapiens, part of which is dedicated to documenting the fictions that have allowed human society to flourish. These fictions, a subcategory of which I refer to as communication protocols, are core to actually creating the incentive structures and the localized interactions 
that are necessary in order to build the type of community that will actually align itself around a national identity. This is a lot of abstract terms, and I want to bring it down to earth, because of course, it can be two things when it gets too abstract. One, it can simply be impossible to understand, and that's a problem in and of itself. But two, it's easy to hide a lot of garbage in there in order to propose things that don't compile upon reaching the borders of reality. Of course, that's one of the sacrifices that you have to make when making an artistic essay, which I believe, in many degrees, this is one. You don't get quite as much beauty without some level of abstraction. However, I think it's in our interest in order to demystify some of these specific concepts. I think the problem with a scaled LARP individually is of course not everyone is going to be participating, there are going to be forces outside it that are antagonistic. But if we look at this as a simple perpetuation game, let's try to have our LARP exist in the future and have a higher population in the future than it has now, then the incentives are actually quite in alignment. Of course, there are record high levels of dissatisfaction with internal governments in the Western democracies that exist now, and in other countries across the world. So the motive is already there. Also, something that I'm going to elaborate on in my response essay is how many of these fragilities, many of these decadent behaviors are actually exactly ones that can be taken advantage of in order to scale such a LARP. And without giving too much away, I want to position this as a very incremental step, which is quite strange considering the whole thesis is building a new country. Incremental generation functions, particularly ones that scale exponentially, can quickly proceed from step to step to step, as we've seen over the course of this podcast, from anything like conspiracy theories and ideologies, to things like mass movements and media companies. So, as always, I urge you not to underestimate the exponential. Minimum Necessary Innovation Let's pause and summarize for a second. The main difference between the seventh method, cloud countries, and the previous six, election, revolution, war, micronation, sea setting, and space, is that it straddles the boundary of practicality and impracticality. No one can claim that it's infeasible to build million-person online communities or billion-dollar virtual currencies, or that it's physically impossible to architect buildings in VR and then crowdfund them. The cloud country concept just requires stacking together many existing technologies, rather than inventing new ones like Mars-capable rockets or permanent habitation seasteads. Yet at the same time, it avoids the obvious pathways of election, revolution, and war, all of which are ugly and none of which provide much venue for individual initiative. In other words, the cloud country concept takes the most robust existing tech stack we have, namely the suite of technologies built around the internet, to root around political roadblocks, without waiting for future physical innovation. This is yet another type of explanation that I think actually does a lot of work. It invokes many of the core technological ideas around the quote-unquote tech stack, which is essentially a hierarchy of technologies in which the most essential are at the bottom, and then you can put various technologies that depend on them on top of that. In this case, these include social technologies, it includes VR architecture, and it includes various other social interactions that we've formed online. I think this is an incredibly powerful appeal to those who are versed in technology, but to those who aren't, let me offer a simple parallel. The US government was not formed 
based off of a one-shot to get to where we are today. Of course, we start with the bare-bones laws, we start with civil regulations, we start with local communities. And while there may be problems arising from each of those situations, these are things that can be incrementally fixed. Of course, the US had one major advantage, or one major feat that was accomplished before it even got started, which is, of course, repelling the British. We're going to have to go through a similar struggle that I'll call crossing the Rubicon, and that I think is likely the most glaring absence from this essay. What counts as a new country? Having outlined these seven methods, the careful reader will notice that we played a bit fast and loose with what the definition of a new country is. First of all, what do we mean by a new country? One definition is that starting a new country means settling a whole new territory, like colonizing Mars. Another definition is that simply changing the form of government actually changes the country, like going from the Second French Republic to the Second French Empire. Rather than using the stricter loose definition, we'll use both numerical and societal definitions of a new country. The numerical definition begins with visualizing a nationrealestatepop.com similar to coinmarketcap.com, in which the number of cloud country members, the acreage of real estate owned by these members, and the on-chain GDP are tracked in real time. Eventually, a cloud country of 5 million people worldwide with thousands of square miles of discontiguous community-owned land and billions in annual income demands recognition. This in turn leads us to the new societal definition. A new country is a new member of the United Nations, one that is internationally recognized by other countries as a legitimate polity capable of self-determination. This combination of absolute and relative metrics matches the emergence of cryptocurrency. Initially ignored then mocked as an obvious failure within five years after its invention, Bitcoin attained a billion dollar market cap, a numerical success, and was subsequently listed on CNBC and Bloomberg alongside blue chip stocks, a form of social recognition. At each step, Bitcoin could ascend numerically on its own, with greater societal recognition following in its wake. By 2020, it had changed the trajectory of the People's Bank of China, the IMF, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and the World Bank. Cryptocurrency was able to achieve these heights because money has both technical and political aspects. The numbers could be piled up before the social accolades followed. Once Bitcoin had proven that it couldn't be easily counterfeited or hacked, the shared belief of tens of millions of cryptocurrency holders worldwide was enough to get BTC from a market cap of zero to one of one trillion, and from there a listing on every Bloomberg terminal. This form of parallelization is actually something that I think comes very natural to the tech community and doesn't always apply to every single realm of reality, of saying, here is some process that we've implemented before and it's been incredibly successful and we can kind of natively integrate this into everywhere else. And quite frankly, that's on average correct when you're in the realm of tech. But these arguments can get a little bit troubled even if their conclusions may actually be correct, because the difficulties in getting a currency off the ground are simply not going to be the same logistically as actually architecting a cloud state. Of course, I think those problems can be resolved, and part of the art of this essay is also uh, creating that inspiring message, I think. However, I'll push back on the assumption that it can take the same type of trajectory as Bitcoin, because essentially what happened with that is that a few dedicated proponents, many of whom were incredibly technologically proficient, ended up carrying the day. And this widespread adoption could be something that happens completely organically, without any type of organized movement. In fact, that's one of the key mottos of Bitcoin. 
have are actually solving the collective action problem and solving the problem of deterrence against other nation states who would love to maintain the monopoly over its geographical territory, there's of course going to have to be several interactions that actually get solved. In my opinion, this only gets solved with a concrete, organized movement in favor of a cloud state, at the very least until we cross that finish line. Bology goes on in the next few paragraphs into a few objective metrics and a likely pathway that he can take in order to try to gain that type of social recognition. But I think the ability to unilaterally impose taxes may be something that's just too precious to give up for many of these states, even if otherwise measurable circumstances would drive leaders to make a different decision. I'll also go more on this on the essay, but let's hear him out. Could a sufficiently robust cloud state with, say, 1 to 10 million committed digital citizens, provable cryptocurrency reserves, and physical holdings all over the earth similarly achieve social recognition from the United Nations? A cloud country with a population this size would actually fit right in the middle of the pack globally, as out of the 193 UN-recognized sovereign states, approximately 20% of existing countries have a population of less than 1 million, and 55% have a population of less than 10 million. This includes many countries people think of as real, like Luxembourg, Cyprus, Estonia, New Zealand, Ireland, Singapore, and so on. These user counts are surprisingly small numbers by tech standards. Of course, mere quantity isn't everything. The strength of affiliation to our hypothetical cloud country matters, as does time spent on the property, the percentage of net worth stored in the currency, and the fraction of contracts found in the community. Still, once we remember that Facebook has 3 billion users, Twitter has 300 million, and many individual influencers have more than 1 million followers, it starts to be not too crazy to imagine that we can build a 1 to 10 million person social network with a genuine sense of national consciousness, an integrated cryptocurrency, and then plan to crowdfund many pieces of territory around the world. With the internet, we can digitally sew these disjoint enclaves together into a new kind of polity, a network state. The next step is to describe exactly how we might go about this. Without the last line, I might be a bit more disagreeable with this, as is just my disposition, but also just because I don't tend to like these types of abstract grand plans. Grand plans tend not to work, but I think, especially with regards to his place in technology, Balji understands that it's not going to be, it's not simply going to be a type of visionary approach. It's going to be some type of generator function, which is also able to scale based on participation and that reflects many of the technical decisions that he made in laying out the case. The question that I really want to answer in fleshing this out, and possibly adding one other piece of the puzzle to such a generating function, is the problem of anti-adversarialism. The power of states trying to fight tooth and nail in order to maintain their control over every single citizen. This is really quite a difficult problem, I think, and without unique circumstances arising from the geopolitics of today, I'm not sure that it would even be possible. Thankfully, today is exactly the time in which we're living in. And so, we can explore this scenario and hopefully create an incremental, scalable, and persistent strategy that is actually very simple for all of you to participate in, and can maybe shave off some of the doubts, or at the very least, give you a little bit of enthusiasm. So, here is my piece. One of the foundational principles of cryptocurrencies is that they're game-theoretically stable. Proof-of-work, for example, is a mechanism which penalizes bad actors with an exorbitant cost and energy for falsifying information. 
The difficulty in architecting a secure, transmutable digital currency comes not from the simple act of sending a payment in good faith. Fiat does that just fine. Instead, rigorous economic and technical work is required to align a system of incentives against bad faith actors in both the fraud and monetary policy areas. Likewise, there's no difficulty in assembling a cadre of online misfits making up the population, wealth and land ownership of a small or medium-sized nation-state for a shared LARP, as the article recommends. Quote, Our idea is to proceed cloud-first, land-last. Rather than starting with the physical territory, we start with the digital community. We recruit online for a group of people interested in founding a new virtual social network, new city, and eventually, a new country. What we've described so far is much like the concept of ethnic diasporas, which are internationally dispersed but connected by communication channels with each other and the motherland. The twist is that our version is a reverse diaspora, a community which forms first on the internet, builds a culture online, and then comes together in person to build dwellings and structures." End quote. Instead, the Rubicon that must be crossed with great effort to attain the desired blank slate is the great escape from existing nations and the laws that govern them. Tragically, the thing that makes a cloud state so desirable, freedom from mismanagement, decadence, and tyranny, is precisely the motive for existing nations to suppress such a movement, with whatever means necessary. Even in Western democracies, the allure of non-negotiated power over the wealth it rules is incomparable even to the sum of their diplomatic powers wielded against smaller nations. There's no shortage of tools that can be leveraged against separatist movements. Existing nation-states typically deal with antagonistic separatists through violence, infrastructure attacks, and economic sanction, the latter of which can be sustained even after a separatist state is internationally recognized. Keep these tactics in mind as a cloud state's disconnected geography is uniquely fragile to each of these attacks. It may seem daunting, but hope for a cloud state springs from the exact demons it seeks to escape. Legacy power has proven countless times to be committed to underestimating its enemy and failing to coordinate. In fact, the clever runway given in the original article is exactly the mechanism that can be used to cripple the metaphorical immune system of legacy governance. Quote, We build the embryonic state as an open source project. We organize our internal economy around remote work. We cultivate in-person levels of civility. We simulate architecture in VR. And we create art and literature that reflects our values. The numerical definition begins with visualizing a nation real estate pop.com, similar to coinmarketcap.com where the number of cloud country members, the acreage of real estate owned by those members, and the on-chain GDP are tracked in real time. Eventually, a cloud country of 5 million people worldwide with thousands of square miles of discontiguous community-owned land and billions in annual income demands recognition. End quote. The synchronized LARP is vital because the exploration of abstract ideas is explicitly sanctioned in Western democracies. The jurisprudential precedent of separatist movements in countries such as the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Spain carve out a domain in which advocating for separatist movements is legal, even if the application of said ideas is not. While the rule of law itself is not guaranteed in other Western-aligned countries, most importantly India, the diasporic nature of a cloud state movement would likely draw scrutiny and pressure from the West if these countries crack down on speech rights. On the other hand, China has repeatedly shown its willingness to persecute individuals, particularly when the economic stakes are high. For the remainder of this article, we'll assume that there will be little to no support from China and other authoritarian states. While defiant supporters of a cloud state may emerge there nonetheless, it's unlikely that they'll make up significant numbers relative to the rest of the global movement due to this chilling effect. 
The hard limit on legal protections of a scaled LARP comes at an attempt to reap the benefits of a new state. Depending on how far one tries to remove him or herself from a legacy state, charges from tax evasion to sedition will unceremoniously rain down. Further non-compliance will result in real violence, an unhappy end for dedicated LARPers. For aforementioned reasons, straightforward security is not available to a cloud state, so the only remaining option is deterrence. Several forms of deterrence available to typical nations are also off the table. This includes the most straightforward option. Quote, This in turn leads us to societal definition. A new country is a new member of the United Nations, one that is internationally recognized by other countries as a legitimate polity capable of self-determination. A cloud country with a population of this size would actually fit right in the middle of the pack globally, as out of the 193 UN-recognized sovereign states, approximately 20% of existing countries have a population of less than 1 million, and 55% have a population of less than 10 million. End quote. The tactic of gaining social recognition by achieving measurable metrics is a fool's errand. Consider, among others, the case of Taiwan, a government with clear geographic territory, a population of over 23 million, and a thriving economic trade relation. On the surface, it clearly rises above a majority of UN-recognized states in the metrics specified in the Montevideo Convention. Its roadblock, of course, is the staunch opposition of the People's Republic of China, whose geopolitical maneuvering has silenced international recognitions from even Taiwan's closest allies. On the global stage, governments can stay irrational longer than a cloud state can keep its freedom. Extreme measures of military deterrence, including nuclear weapons and other catastrophic technologies, is another possibility. I will not make a practical argument for or against them, but instead a moral argument that the risk inherent in acquiring them is against the spirit of non-violence presented in the original article. This leaves the economic and social levers, which if used deftly, may actually suffice. A cloud state can begin by focusing on the weakness of the so-called weird countries, white, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic nations whose decisions likely determine whether a cloud state sinks or floats. The liberal pieties and economic legacy of these countries are the petri dish of a new polity in which internal competition in the eroding shell of institutions strongly outweighs incentives for collective action. On face value, this seems like a drastic or even hyperbolic claim, but faced with a mountain of supporting evidence, including record polarization, baseless attacks on the idea of meritocracy, and increasing self-destructive participation in politics, Douthat's case becomes increasingly difficult to refute. Many progenitors of the cloud state cite these exact circumstances as a reason for their movement. Luckily, one man's trash is another man's treasure. This easily exploitable incentive structure is exactly the pathway towards a successful cloud state movement. An essential property of the cloud diaspora is that members naturally permeate all layers of society. In the same way that everyone knows either a gay person or knows someone who knows someone who is a gay person, Clouders aren't just some foreign nation, they're your friends, family, and neighbors. Through a well-organized, persistent cultural campaign, emotionally compelling human interest stories can circumnavigate imaginations worldwide. In that case, the incentive structure is reversed. Does the US government alienate everyone who knows a clouder by cracking down on a united withdrawal campaign? Does it risk fracturing an already frail supply chain? Or do they eat the revenue loss? which they can dismiss and kick down the road. How about the EU? A willingness to negotiate can tip the scales even further in our favor. 
Because of the movement nature in the cloud state, there's a natural progression that solves the collective action problem. There's full immunity in sheltering inside the LARPing team, while building up a cultural presence. With each brave step across the Rubicon, the incentives for others to follow only increase. Once the movement has cultural traction, if repressive measures are taken, momentum is likely to be carried forward by public opinion backlash. Of course, the words well-organized and persistent are doing a lot of heavy lifting here. No one expects that clouders will be the only ones to wage a media war. In fact, a coordinated cloud state will likely lose to a coordinated geographic state. Fortunately for us, competence isn't what we're up against. As with any moonshot idea, it's understandable to approach this type of effort bearing a heart heavy with doubt. A roadmap riddled with contingencies and short-term failure is not just possible, but expected. We'll have to build incrementally, as we always do. However, what we have is a guiding star. We have a unifying value to organize behind, and when that's matched against a society that has lost theirs, that has long since sunk into loathing and disrepair, it is well enough to carry us across the finish line. Just a few closing remarks to edit in. Does this essay mean that I'm secretly a hyper-libertarian, that I've been on your side all this time as many of my hyper-libertarians have been uh, hoping for? No, not quite. I don't believe that the vast majority of people will actually end up being part of a cloud state, only that the incentives for a strong minority in order to separate do exist. What's the difference between these two? Well, the fundamental problem that I have with libertarianism is that it underestimates the value of outsourcing thinking. It underestimates the value of really not having to worry about a thing. And of course, if you take that to the extreme, you get autocracy. But I think most people psychologically are satisfied by something in the middle. They're not necessarily seeking that exact clean slate that either Balaji or the libertarian crowd is looking for. However, I think that the existence of an alternative is vital, even if this isn't something that subsumes many of the existing countries. I have another interesting remark on the parallel structure of both my essay and the original by Balaji Srinivasan. We start in both situations with a layout of the vision of the core thesis problem to solve. We then proceed to specifics and work out some specific technical interactions before finally heading to the exit and making a moral call to action at the end of it. Of course, this is one subgenre of essays in general, but I see it to be increasingly prevalent among both the heterodox crowd and also the technological crowd. Maybe there's something in that aesthetic that is particularly beautiful and compelling for those who want to see divergent change in the world. Finally, of course, you'll notice that this is not nearly quite as rigorous, quite as practical, or quite as verifiable as any of the other episodes that I've done. That's why I've stated up front that it's something different, it's a bonus, and why it's not being released as one of your usual weekly episodes. Of course, as always, you'll get that on Tuesday. However, I think a bit of curious exploration, even if you don't take this to heart as a way to navigate every single part of your world, is still something that you can learn a lot from, and I hope you did. As always, if you found that interesting, if you know someone who would find that interesting, then share it to them. Pass them a link, or just mention some of the core ideas. I don't care how it gets there as long as they end up having the idea and possibly end up engaging and contributing something of their own. Or your own. 
And as always, if you do that, thank you.